Welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. There are just some things that you don't have the opportunity to get through. You just kind of hang on, hoping somehow that it will get better. It reminds me of a, a moment that we had in our family that was definitely a made-for-TV moment. Although it wasn't Hallmark that it was made for, it was more like Jerry Springer, right? I just going to be real with you. Can I be real this morning and just tell you a little bit about my family? So one year, I brought this uh, woman home. I was bringing her to meet this, my family, and I was uh, real excited to introduce her to aunts and uncles and, and folks that she hadn't met yet. And... As I brought her into the house, I mean, it was perfect. It was my aunt's home, and the music was playing Christmas melodies. And I thought, man, this is great. The smells of Christmas just filled the atmosphere. And I brought her in, and everybody was cheerful. It was like one of those Instagram moments, no filter. You take a snapshot and go, this is it. But literally, as soon as the thought is exiting my brain, something happens. I notice my brother's sort of, arguing across the living room. And one of them, my older brother, darts as fast as he can towards my younger brother, tackles him in the living room. I mean, how way, what better way to impress a girl you're trying to bring to your family? Tackles him across the living room. They fall into the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree falls upon them. The household is a disaster. And it just so happens my older brother's name is Jerry. So Jerry, Jerry. I mean, here it is. This is the house. It's a Jerry Springer moment. I know y'all are too holy for that, that show. But I'm telling you, you might be too holy for the household I grew up in too. Because it was an ever-loving mess sometimes. And was not anything like a made-for-TV moment that could be resolved in an hour and a half. For some reason, that relationship never really worked out. I'm not really sure what happened there, but (laughs) I think I know. But that doesn't seem like Hallmark, does it? Doesn't feel like Hallmark. Doesn't feel like what we watch on television. Because our lives are lived in experiences that are disjointed from the way that we like to portray them. The snapshots we give on Instagram or the pictures we post on Facebook are the slices of life that usually we're most proud of the moments that we like to talk about. And I wonder how it is that this is, in fact, Hallmark. Could it be that it's not supposed to be like that? Or maybe our idea of what Hallmark is supposed to be is where it's all wrong. That it's not supposed to look like a world that has itself in perfect order. But maybe it's in fact a world that has been painfully disoriented, that is on a collision course with grace. That's where we find our reading this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter one. And I wanna invite you to do something maybe that is a bit difficult to do. And that is to hear this story again for the first time. The problem with the Christmas story is even if you're new to church or you haven't been around church very much, the chances are high that you've heard about Bethlehem, that you've heard about shepherds in the mangers, you've heard about Mary and Joseph. And the problem with hearing a story like this over and over again is we become desensitized to 
It's intended shock that it means to have upon our lives. So maybe this morning we can enter into it again in a different way. Matthew 1 and verse 18, we begin. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. What? A virgin is pregnant. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are Joseph. You're pledged to be married. In that culture, to be pledged is, holds the legal weight of marriage. It's as if you are already in the bond, except that the marriage ceremony has not been complete. Back then, a pledge to be married was legally as binding as marriage itself. If you were pledged, you were legally obligated to this woman. And so Joseph doesn't believe the story. He hears the most painful message that he can imagine hearing. He's been waiting his whole life probably to marry this person. He's a just person. He's faithful to the law, which means he's been saving himself for this woman. Tradition tells us he's probably 30 or more, in age, uh, 30 or more years in age. So he's been waiting a while. He's been waiting his whole life and homegirl tells him, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, Joe, it's good. It's all good because it's the Holy Ghost that did this to me. Oh, come on. You know what? I've heard some whoppers in my time, but I have never seen someone try to blame God for their pregnancy. In fact, if they did, we would have called them crazy and had them committed because there is something wrong with this scene and Joseph knows it. That's why he is thinking in his head, I've got to divorce this horrible person. I've got to divorce her. That's really the, the movement that's coming to the narrative. And sometimes we become disconnected because we don't slow down enough in the scripture to read the white space. Every scripture has it, your Bibles and mine. We have the words, but the emotional piece, our human experiences are what happen to the in the white space, the where it is that this word encounters us, the way in which scripture comes alive to us. Joseph 
is wanting to divorce her. And the reason he wants to divorce her is because she tells him or someone tells him that she's pregnant and that she's blaming the Holy Spirit for it. And he's saying, nah, I've heard some whoppers, but this is maybe the best one. I can't stay here. I'm out. But what if Joseph steps out of the narrative? What if you step out of your story and the moment God means to be the hallmark moment of your life, you step away from it because it doesn't look like God. Because God doesn't work this way. Keep in mind, it is true that God never had up until this point. But I love the way that God can make something happen that is tailored just for us. To have a story that breaks up the usual flow of the way that the universe has worked since its inception. That fathers and mothers have created children. That God is able to interrupt this program to show his grace, to bring forth a true hallmark moment. Part of the problem, though, is the way in which we understand hallmark because of great television shows like the one that we just showed to you just a second ago. Because we assume that for it to be God, that it has to look like Hollywood or has to be perfect. But that's not the way that God encounters each of us. But if we understand the term hallmark and where it comes from, it maybe helps us to find our way into this narrative because Joseph's story is in fact a hallmark story, perhaps the greatest of them. The idea of hallmark comes from England and it's the mark that you usually find on a piece of pottery or jewelry made of fine metals like gold or silver or platinum. And the hallmark would be the distinction on the bottom that is the verification of its purity, 24 karat gold. This is the gold standard. And it's marked by some trusted source that says, I am the one that is verifying its truth. Or perhaps a piece of art that would, where the term comes from, hang on the hallway in which you would see the signature authenticating who the artist is that has created this beautiful masterpiece. It's the hallmark, it's the piece. But in our colloquial ways of understanding, or our human ways of understanding, the hallmark moment or the hallmark part of a person's life is its point of distinction where they have distinguished themselves above others. Joseph's story is a hallmark story, but he almost missed it. He was this Close, a hair's breadth away from jumping out of the story of Jesus in his life. And I find that that's where we are often. We jump out of the story right before the story is about to get good. Right before things are getting ready to turn. Because it doesn't look like the way in which we expect God to work. And so Joseph, our evangelist this morning, is trying to communicate some truth that we really need to digest internally into the soulish places of our existence so that God may bring hallmark to us. The first thing that he would tell us is don't give up on your story. 
Don't give up on your story. Just because it doesn't look like God right now doesn't mean that God is not in the places where you most need him. God is able to call an audible at any point and turn everything on a dime should he will. But we must stay faithful and trust that God is at work even when it seems like God isn't. Joseph, being a just man and not willing to make a public example of Mary, has in mind, he's thinking, I'm going to divorce this person. And then, in that space, God interrupts Joseph's life with a dream. But Joseph is still having to process all of what's happening here because there's a lot moving this narrative along. He has to decide, am I going to give up on this love story? I've pledged to marry this person. Am I going to believe that God can be at work in the worst news that I've ever heard? That God could be at work in that betrayal. That God could be at work when the report is that the cancer's back. That God could be at work in the strained places in our relationships. I think it becomes so clear to me as I'm looking at this story that that's exactly what we do. We give up on it because it does not as grand as it would be or should be because if God was in it, it certainly wouldn't look like this. It wouldn't look like my wife-to-be just cheated on me. It wouldn't look like this. But sometimes it just does. And sometimes that disjointed part of our life is where God means to do his greatest work. Or sometimes it actually is that bad. The betrayal is that true and real. And so sometimes what we do is we want to run from the problem instead of confronting it. But conflict is not necessarily a bad thing because if we explore what conflict offers to us, there is a treasure inside of it. Because if there's conflict, there has to be a reason for conflict. And if the enemy is at work and trying to bring destruction, it also means that that's where God wants to bring forth his greatest blessing. The reason for the conflict is because the struggle is illumining to us, making light of where it is that God does his best work. And that is precisely in the place of our misunderstandings. Precisely in the space of our greatest pain. Joseph is devastated. And the Bible says he's just. He's faithful to the law. But he himself doesn't want to make a public example of Mary. So he has it in mind. He's like, look, I know by law this is the way that this goes down. If you are found to be pregnant, you have two options. You either find the man that has done this to you and he can marry you. Or the law says you can be stoned. I don't want you to be stoned. I don't want you to have to die that kind of death. So I'm just going to do this privately. I'm going to try to just wipe the slate clean as if it didn't even happen. Because if they tried to search for the man in Mary's case, there wouldn't be one. So God is willing to come into a world and be misunderstood. And I know that that's the way that God comes to many of us. We misunderstand his movement because it doesn't feel good. Because sometimes it can be painful to have to walk through situations and issues that are beyond our capacity to handle them. 
But it's that inability to handle the problems that is the actual marker that reminds us that that's where God most wants to be at work. To not despise the small beginnings because it's not as grand as we hope. Remember Elijah when he was looking to hear what God was saying? It wasn't in the fire or the thunderstorm, but in the still small voice. And sometimes that's all we get. And Joseph has an option to give up or not. We talk about him today because he didn't give up. And they'll talk about your story someday if you refuse to throw in the towel. When the betrayal hurts so bad and reconciliation seems such an unlikely outcome there to trust still that God can do a work. But you know our problem Our problem is, is that even when God is trying to work and trying to deliver us, we have this way in which we try to search out the very things that God delivers us from because it's familiar. We would much rather go into the normal cycle of what we call normal cycle of things because to go there, it's familiar. It's easier for us to relate to and connect with that which we best understand. And sometimes we best understand dysfunction. I know how to work in an environment where things are dysfunctional, so I'm going to go ahead and stay there. And in Joseph's world, it would have been very easy for him to just follow the structure as it's always been. In this case, what you do, the law's made provision for it, is to divorce this person. He has to be willing to walk in a new path, but that's really where the struggle is for most of us because doing something new will cause us to have to do what we hate most, and that's to change. But that's where God wants to meet us. I saw this illustrated so powerfully. Some years ago, we were trying to help this woman. Her name was Mrs. Lynch. And Mrs. Lynch had some terrible things happening to her home. Somebody had broke into it, and they had done some damage inside. We'd heard about her story, and we were going to give this woman an extreme home makeover and just redo her entire house. I walk into Mrs. Lynch's living room, and I say, hey, Mrs. Lynch, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come in here. You see those cabinets that are all burned up? You see all of these things that are missing and stolen? We're going to replace them all. We're going to redo your entire home. She goes, all of it? Well, can you just build, uh, you know, an addition onto the home so I can store all my stuff? I go, well, what's in this stuff? And if you looked at her home, it was covered with trash. From floor to ceiling, there was just little pathways so that she could walk to the bathroom and everything like that. But literally from floor to ceiling, trash. I go, well, what's in there? I said, do you even know what's in there? She goes, no, but I need it. I said, how do you know you need it? She goes, because I saved it. I said, well, you saved it, but that doesn't mean you need it. Do you think you could look through it and help us to kind of get rid of some of this stuff? Because we can't work in this environment. We can't even get our contractors inside here. She said, thanks for a second, because you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. So we get one of those big construction dumpsters and we put it out front of Mrs. Lynch's home and we start to fill it with the things that she says, okay, throw away this, throw away this, throw away this. And so we're throwing in there. And we come back the next day and it felt like we weren't making progress. And then I realized what the issue was. I saw 73-year-old Mrs. Lynch dumpster diving and pulling out the very trash that we had just taken from her home and thrown away and bringing it back into the home. She's bringing it into the back door as we're taking it out the front. And I thought, this woman is out of her ever-loving mind. And I know, like, hoarding's like a real issue, and I'm not trying to, like, defame people that are like that. And the Lord said, but you do the same thing. 
I tried to deliver you from stuff and you go dumpster diving and try to bring it back because you don't think that you can live without it. But to do and walk in the course that God has requires us to change. It also calls us to not give up on the story that God is trying to write by redeeming and by calling an audible. For those of you that don't get the reference, that means to do something new that hasn't been done or to call a different play. And sometimes that's what God is trying to do. But that means that we've got to be willing to change the play when it doesn't look like it's supposed to, to trust that God is working through in it. The second thing we see Moses, I mean Moses, Joseph, doing, it's pretty powerful, is he, he's got to manage his doubt. We think that Joseph is so much different than us. I, I want you to pay attention to the scripture again. Joseph, being a just man and not willing to make a public example of Mary, decides that he's going to put her away sort of quietly. But an angel of the Lord visits him in a dream and says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. On the fragility, listen, on the fragility of a dream, Joseph changes course. A dream. I'll be honest, I, I would need a little more than a dream if my wife had told me, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's the Holy Ghost. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I would need a little more than a dream. But on the fragility of a dream, Joseph changes course and says, this must be God. But we assume that Joseph is somehow superhuman. When we read the stories about these folks in Scripture, we think that they're somehow way different than we, or they get it way better than we, or they're way stronger than we, but we know that he's human just like you and I are human, and he's got doubts just like you and I have doubts. Is this true? Or did this woman cheat on me? Is this true? And you got to remember that he's going through his emotions, and he's probably, after the fact, wondering, is this God or is it not? And this is what I realize often about our own human experiences is that faith and doubt are always together. It's which we decide, which one of those that we decide to hold on to most will determine the outcome. If we hold on to doubt stronger than we hold on to faith, then what will happen to us is we will most likely miss out on God's best. But if we hold on to faith, trusting that God is at work even in very dark places or places where his voice seems to be so dissonant sounding to our ears that we will lean in still and say, God, still, I trust you. He's having to walk through those kinds of experiences and the truth about that is, is that most of us have to as well. When we know that God is trying to bring hope into the situations that we walk in, that faith and doubt are always going to be held in the very same hand, and we have to decide which one are we going to listen to or trust. Do we trust faith that God is at work even in very painful situations? Do we trust that God is not done working through our story even when our story so far has been a mess or it's been marked more by tragedy or more by brokenness? What are we going to trust? Are we going to doubt that God can work or are we going to be in faith and say, Lord, I know that so far my life's been a mess, but as I look at Joseph's story, 
His life seemed to be a mess too, but you were working in unseen ways to bring forth your glory in a manner that the world had never seen before. Could it be that the hallmark of your life is at the very place where doubt and faith are in a collision course? Could it be that in that place where hopelessness seems to be so strong that hope comes to ransom yourself from the dark place for which you now sit. It's here that I know that God desires to do his greatest work in your life and in mine. But we've got to manage doubt when we're at our points of crisis. We've got to manage our doubt and say, Lord, I trust you anyways because you have never, ever left me. I saw on television recently the true story of this kind of experience. It's a story of James J. Braddock, a prize fighter that lived in the 20s and 30s. He was up for the title, but before he could fight for the prize title, he injured his hand, he broke his hand, and then on the heels of that, the Great Depression happens. Things could not get worse for his family. He tried to fight to make money, but because he could never rightly heal, he was always fighting hurt. And because he was always fighting hurt, he was either losing the bouts or performing so poorly that finally the boxing commission said, you know what? Your days of fighting, they're over. You have fought your last fight. We are banning you. The boxing commission says, you're never going to fight in this town again. That's all he knew to do. And so he, it's the Great Depression. So his family is struggling. They don't know how they're going to eat. They don't know how they're going to make it. He only knew how to be a prize fighter. And the very thing that he knew most, he could no longer do. But there was something that was happening behind the scenes. He had a friend named Joe Gould that never gave up on something. And at one particular point, such a powerful scene. He says, sometimes you see something in a fighter that you're not even sure yourself if it's real. The fragility of a dream that this guy can come back and it's impossible. The boxing commission has banished him. He's working the docks and because his hand was broken, he's learned to use his left hand in a way like he never had before. And on a whim, because there was a moment that one of the contenders dropped out of the bout and no one in their right mind would take the fight. Joe Gould says, I know just the man. And they put him back in the ring with literally no training and he beats a contender for the title. The boxing commission reinstates him. And Joe Gould is right there encouraging him and saying, you can do it. I know that you're, there's a champion inside of you. I see it. And every chance he got, he was calling that forth until he fights the champion, Max Bear, and he takes him out and goes the distance with the champion, and he wins the title. And it's all because there was one person that believed in him when no one else did. God is that person for us. That even when our lives have been shattered through divorce, even when our, we've made a mess of our financial situation, even when we are at fault or we are at least at part fault for the situation that we now find ourselves in, that God is the one saying, I see greatness in you. And even though you don't believe in you, I have never once stopped believing that you could become the person I've called you to be because my hallmark is on your life 
You might be like a fine piece of art that's covered in dirt and that doesn't look like much, but the more you wipe away the dirt, you'll notice in the bottom right corner the name of Jesus Christ. He says, my DNA, my image is upon them and I am calling forth my glory from their life. That's what God was doing in Joseph through his doubt. He was calling him forth that he might mark his life in distinction. It's powerful. The third word that Joseph gives us today is he teaches us to stand on the word. Joseph is not a man that's standing on a whim or an idea or a thought. Oh, I think it would be cool if this is God. But Joseph is standing on the word of God. How did Matthew get the information that he wrote in his gospel? Have you ever thought about that? We know he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing, but he's an investigator. He's asking questions of the key characters, and he would have firsthand access to either Joseph or at least someone that knew Joseph. And I think it pointed and appropriate that he puts some very important information in this text that we might miss if we are anxious readers that try to speed through the story. Joseph is just. He's faithful to the law, which means he knows the word. And when God speaks to him in a dream, I believe that what Joseph does based on the text is he goes back and he starts trying to locate his story in God's story. If you want to know where God is in your life, why don't you look through his story or history of the way that God has worked? Because there's chances that you're going to see crossover in the way that God will work. And he notices the word of a prophet and says that the virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. He goes, that's me. That's my intersection point. That's what God is trying to say. And you see in rapid fire three successive prophecies that have been passed on to Matthew that is more than just a good investigative reporter, but he's getting firsthand information from people that walked it. Joseph is a man of the book. He is a man that's convinced of his truth and he finds the correlating points to his life and says, that's me. And when there's weeping in Ramah because Herod is killing the child, he sees and hears Rebecca's cry for a child that would someday come in the person of Christ. And he says, that's me. And then when Herod is chasing him and he has to go to godless Egypt, he says, that's me. And when God is calling him out of Egypt to come back and establish in Nazareth, because that's what the prophet says, he goes, that's me. He finds intersection points. And so when Matthew Matthew is looking for God. He finds it in the person of Joseph who is faithful to the law. And when Joseph comes time for him to name the Christ child, he names him Jesus, which means God saves. But there's one more that's me. He says, look what I have. It's Emmanuel. God with us. Our ability to see Our world through a biblical imagination is critical at seeing and receiving biblical outcomes. He is inviting us to do the very same thing that he is doing. You know, that accident should have killed me, 
But Psalm 91 says that he will give his angels charge concerning me so that even though death should take my life, that God will preserve it. When I don't have the resources and the resources are insufficient, the word says that he is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. When I feel displaced and despondent because my story doesn't look quite the way that it should and because it's been messed up and bound up in addiction, I see and recognize that in the person of Christ, it says that he will proclaim freedom to the captives in whom the son is set free, is free indeed. That God can free you so decidedly that you never look back again. And when we see our story and his story, he proclaims claims his glory to a world that is desperate to see the hallmark on the authentic and the true. This is Joseph's Christmas sermon for you today. If your family is a mess and every generation in times past has just been marked with hopelessness, we just have to look back at Jesus' ancestors and see the prostitutes and see the murderers and see the scoundrels and the liars to see the outsiders coming in. And we see that even through that, Christ can be born, which gives us hope that if we allow Christ to come into our hearts today, that Christ will bound forth. And you might be the first one to ever go to college. You might be the first one to have a 401k. You might be the first one to move out of the ghetto you might be the first one but the first ones are always coming on the heels of what Christ has done this is the power of the message of Christmas the world had never seen it like this before and the world will never see it like it's been done before in your life if you recognize that God is still writing your story right now and on this Christmas Sunday, just one more service between now and Christmas Day on Christmas Eve, on this Christmas Sunday, to hear the echoes of what Joseph is trying to communicate to you and to I. You and me, don't give up on your story. Manage your doubt and find your story in his story. Find it. Be a person of the book. Because when we look at our lives through a biblical imagination, we'll see intersecting points everywhere. And it gives us the hope to carry on today. I invite the worship team to come back up. I want to share one more story with you about a friend of mine named Paul. Paul is an evangelist and travels all over the world sharing the gospel. One day over coffee, he and I were having a chat and he was telling me, he's like, it wasn't always like this. It's like, how'd you get started? Like, what, what made you decide to go here? He's like, man, you know my story. And he goes, I was on television and I was all over the airwaves, but in a moment, it all came crashing down for me. I said, what do you mean? He goes like, well, the integrity of those that I was working with started to become in question. And when their integrity was in question, people started questioning me. I hadn't had any part of the shenanigans that they were a part of. And in a day, a moment, I lost everything. I lost my wife. I lost my job. I lost my pride and dignity. People misunderstood who I was because of the people that I was running with. So I went to the only place that I knew that I could go to try to help me sort through this, which was my home back 
in Minnesota. It was a cold winter day, he said. I drove up in the driveway and I was looking for the familiar face of my mother, but she had long passed. But my father was there and he greeted me. He says, Paul, it's good to have you home, son. Come on inside. I crawled up to the room that I had slept in as a child and I sat on the bed. And I just said, God, what am I gonna do? This doesn't look like the life that I hope to have with you. This is a mess. And so Paul just begins to wonder how it is that he can make sense of this disaster, this dumpster fire that had come of his life. And he hears this word inside of his head that says, you should just kill yourself. End it now. There isn't any hope for you anymore. Whatever you have done in this world and good you have done for this world, you've already done. This world and this place would be better without you. So he walks over to the door and he turns the lock. He reaches under his bed and he pulls out the pistol. He loads each of the chambers of that 38 special and he lies it on the bed next to him. He hears a rattle at the door. He knows it's his father, and his father says, Paul, are you okay? He says, yeah, Dad, I'm all right. I just need a few minutes to myself. I'm just really struggling. So he hears this sort of rumbling in the back, but this inaudible sounds from his dad in another room, but doesn't really understand what is happening. So he just sits on his bed, hands in his face, and just weeps. He weeps, and he weeps, because he doesn't see any hope. But he's also weeping because he wants the courage to pull the trigger to finally end. And so all night he's yelling at God and yelling about a situation as frustrating, as frustrated as he could possibly be about everything that had happened. He finally gets the courage and he's about to pull the trigger and he hears the rattle again at his door. His dad is shaking it violently, but it won't unlock. And so his dad does only what he knows how to do, and he's going to break in the room where his son is. He, he does so, and he comes in, and Paul's in shock, gun laying next to him on the side of the bed, and the father goes over to the blind, and he yanks it up, and he points out in the horizon where the sun is just breaking dawn. And he says, son, see, the sun still rises. I know that you feel like your life is over and I know that you feel painfully disoriented like it's never going to work out. But that sun coming up is the reminder that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The sun will rise on your broken heart. The sun will rise on your indecision. The sun will rise on your hopelessness. The sun will rise again. And he said it was that moment that changed my life forever. Because God showed up. And so when I preach, I always preach with that moments in my life 
that there's no place I could go or no place anybody I'll preach to, no matter how low they are, no matter how bound up they are, that God's grace and glory can't meet them. It's really the story that Joseph is trying to bring to us this morning and the story this pastor is trying to bring to you. Do you hear the whisper of the Spirit? The melody of grace that's just flowing through this space this morning. Don't disgrace. Don't disgrace because it comes in a package you don't expect. Don't disgrace just because your life hasn't worked out so far. Don't disgrace what God means to be grace, to bring you through, to give you hope and new life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. Join Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church next time for another powerful and inspirational message. To find out more about Covenant Life Church, log on to www.covenant-life.com or call 919-462-1932. Remember, living life without direction is meaningless. Living a purpose life with direction from Jesus Christ is your life fulfilled.